All right. Good morning, everyone. I'll try that one more time. Good morning, everyone. All right. Good morning. Good to see each of you. I'm just going to be honest and say when I wake up on a day like this, I was actually disappointed it was Sunday, but understand how I'm saying that. A rainy, cold day. I want to stay in bed, okay? So thank you for getting out of bed and uh, coming to join us today. We gather for an important purpose, and that is to glorify God and to uh, hear his truth that can change our lives and can save souls, right? So we come together with joy to that end this morning, even though it is rainy outside. Um, just want to remind you that we have a couple things that go on on Sundays. Uh, Sunday mornings, we have our Sunday school hour at 930. Uh, we have a number of different classes. And then Doug is teaching a class on the parable. So if you have a desire to uh, learn about the Gospels and to better understand the parts of the Gospels that tend to be very challenging to understand, uh, this is an area that Doug has taught at the doctoral level. He's taught it at college level. He's taught it at seminary level. And it's a great opportunity for you to get a grasp, a firmer grasp on God's Word. So I'm going to encourage you, 9.30 on Sunday mornings, those classes are available. We have teen class that I teach and then a number of other things. Uh, at night, we have our psalm study that you're welcome to come to. Uh, Pastor James teaches that at 6.30. That's available online and available in person. So if you're looking for a place to connect with people at a more intimate and deep level, that is available. Uh, and I was thinking this morning, through the week, there's a lot going on uh, here at the building. Uh, there are daily and uh, weekly Bible studies that take place. There are, is grief share that takes place on Tuesday nights. And I think you want to encourage you to be praying for that ministry. I think 16 to 18 people were, have come out for the grief share ministry, which is really just such a beautiful thing to know that we're able to have that impact on our community for the glory of God. Wednesday night, there's youth group, worship teams here on Thursday nights for practice, typically. And then all week long, we have the community blend. We're not, let, me, let me qualify all week. It's Wednesday through Saturday. Uh, Wi-Fi here. You can come, get coffee. Uh, you may be working uh, from home, but you don't want to work at home. You're looking for a place to go where you can just spend some time hooking up online and doing what you need to do with your work. So that's available all week long. So we just want you to be aware of some of the things that are taking place here at the chapel during the week. I want to ask you to stand with me as we go to the Lord in prayer for some of the needs that are before us this morning. Father, we are grateful that we can come together this morning, even on a day when we may not want to get out of bed, we get out of bed and come to worship and to be with our friends and family spiritually, to grow and to glorify you together. And so, Lord, for the privilege that we have to gather in freedom, thank you. And uh, Lord, I pray that we would not treat this time lightly. I pray that we would come and, as people have said recently, we would be very present in the moment of this morning. Uh, so that truth that is sung and truth that is spoken will deeply uh, impact our hearts and our lives. Uh, when we come, Lord, we're mindful of a couple of the physical needs that are present. There are too many to mention in this setting, Lord, but we continue to thank you for Tom's progress and ask that that would be just more deeply and powerfully encouraged. We lift up Diana and Gary as both of them are working through a process of treatment related to battles with cancer. And God, we trust you to be the healer for these folks, Lord. We trust that you will work very powerfully in their circumstance in healing and through their circumstance 
to grow them for your glory. And Lord, we just covet that you would be working in those beautiful ways. We pray uh, for a number of marriages within our church family where there are unique needs. Lord, you know those situations. And I trust that you would be working, God, to bring hope and restoration and healing as is needed for all of us in those relationships, Father. We trust that your word will meet those needs today. And we ask that you would be uh, just with the people in Ukraine. Uh, Lord, that situation breaks our heart on a daily basis as we listen and we see the news and we just cry out to you, God, to do justice and to bring what is right for the glory of your name. Lord, we know on each side there are broken and fallen people. And we trust that you, God, would do your purpose and do your will in ways that I personally cannot even understand. But I trust you to do that, Lord. I pray that you will meet us here, Lord. As we worship you this morning, as we sing your praises, uh, God, help us to join in wholeheartedly to sing to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, encouraging one another in our hearts before you. Bless your truth as we hear it. Help us to put it into practice, sung and spoken. For the glory of Jesus, we pray this morning in his name and all God's people said, amen. Savior, Savior, He can move the mountains. 
Lord, this morning we praise you. We give you glory, God. You are mighty to save. You have forgiven. You have redeemed. You have protected, Lord. We thank you that we can sing these truths. Please be with us as we continue to sing to you. the God who is. We worship the God who was. We worship the God who is. We worship the God who evermore will be. Because he opened the prison doors. He parted the ragings. My God, my God, he holds the victory. There's joy in the house of the Lord. There's joy in the house of the Lord today. And we won't be quiet. We shout out your praise. There's joy in the house of the Lord. Our God. 
God who heals. We sing to the God who heals. We sing to the God who saves. We sing to the God who always makes a way. Cause he hung upon that cross and he rose up from that grave. My God still rose the beggars and now we're royalty we were the beggars now we're royalty we were the prisoners now we're running free we are forgiven accepted redeemed by his grace let the house of the lord sing praise we were the beggars now we're we were the prisoners, now we're running free. We are forgiven, accepted, redeemed by His grace. Let the house of the Lord sing praise. There's joy in the house of the Lord. There's joy in the house of the Lord today. And we won't be quiet. No, we shout out. Shout out your praise. There's joy in the house of the Lord. There's joy in the house of the Lord today. And we won't be quiet. No, we shout out your praise. There's joy in the house of the Lord. Our God is surely in this place. And we won't be quiet. Because we were the beggars. Now we're royalty. We were the my mind 
Yes, Lord, this morning we come before you and offer our burdens up to you. We as a church, as your people, Lord, the only thing we can do this morning is offer up our praise to you, our glory, our honor to you, Lord. We honor you, we glorify you, we praise you. Lord, we know that one day you will return in robes of white, and I will rise among the saints. My gaze transfixed on Jesus' face. God, may that be true of us here on earth. May our gaze always be transfixed upon Jesus' face. Every minute, every hour, every decision, every thought, Lord, taken captive by Jesus, taken captive by the freedom that you offer us. God, we thank you that we are in your family, that those of us who believe in you and know you and have been rescued by you, we can say that is our God working, that is our God moving. May we see that in our lives this week, Lord. May we see that as we listen to your word this morning, see how you have moved. Every story in the Bible is a story of you moving and working. May that be true today as we listen. God, be with Pastor Doug as he speaks to us. We thank you for this time of worship. Ask you to be glorified in our listening and then doing of the word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Children, you can be dismissed for junior church. Oh, Ben. Ben's back, huh? Ben DePinto. Hey, welcome back. Wow. Ben DePinto's been in military service, and uh, wow, he's back home with his family. That's so good. So, thank you. And we got another visitor. Um, Victor and Diana Kelly are sitting back there. Right. right there. So good to see you. I, I can't tell you how good it is to see you. So uh, we continue to pray for you and pray blessing. If I didn't say it, children, you could be dismissed for junior church. I'm going to start crying up here. Um, Turn with me to uh, Ruth chapter 4. Ruth chapter 4. It's almost sad to let this book go. <laughs> I tell you, it's like it's, um, it seems like we went through it pretty quickly. Just to give you a heads up, uh, next week we have Palm Sunday. Uh, then we'll have a Good Friday service. We'll have Easter Sunday. Um, and then... Uh, we're going to be starting a new series in the book of Esther. So we're, send, we're sending off Ruth here. and We're in this series and it's entitled, God is Sovereign. I'm sorry, God's Providence in Our Perilous Times. My title is God is Sovereign in Our Redemption. I want you to think back to the story with Ruth. Ruth began with a really dark backdrop and... Uh, we had a family that was struggling with famine in their land, and they decided to leave. Whether they should have left or not, uh, it's debatable. Um, but they left the people of God, and they went to a foreign land, and they went to Moab. And if you remember, it was a husband and wife and their two sons. Uh, well, the, the father dies, the husband dies, and it's left. Naomi is left on her own with her two sons. Her two sons take on Moabite wives, and they take on these wives, and in all likelihood, these women are not believers in Yahweh. They're not believers in God. And they, then they die. 
And now it puts them in even more perilous situations where you have a woman, Naomi, and her two daughters-in-law in this foreign land. And where are they going to get their provision? And how are they going to provide for themselves and protect themselves? And then all of a sudden, God um, breaks through time and brings out a uh, relief of the famine. And this relief of the famine, they hear the good news in Moab, and then they decide they're going to go back. And Naomi, recognizing that she has no real family back at home to support herself, let alone these two daughters-in-laws, she says to these daughter-in-laws, please go back. And she urges them to go back. And after a while, one of them decides to go back, but then you know what Ruth did. Ruth made the decision to stay with Naomi. She said, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people and my God, your God, my God. So she made this provision of, she, she professed her faith in God and then professed her loyal love to Naomi. But at the end, you saw that Naomi comes back to her land and Naomi is bitter. She says, don't call me uh, Naomi, call me bitter, Mara. She's self-pitying, she is bitter, and she says, I have gone away full and I've come back empty. And if you remember, we talked about the fact that Ruth is right there with her and she doesn't even acknowledge Ruth. Even in fact, the women that were there did not seem to acknowledge Ruth. But at the end of, Rome, uh, at the end of Ruth chapter one, we hear the beauty that God has broken through and provided a barley harvest and a harvest. And then we got into chapter two and Pastor Doug got a chance to preach through that. And you could see the, the problem with little food and they needed their older women and the foreign woman and the problem of no descendants and how are we going to care for ourselves? And she sends out, Naomi sends out Ruth to glean in the field and it is just by chance she runs into Boaz. And Boaz is a close family member and Boaz sees this woman and he says, who is she? And he provides, provides for her and he protects her and he is caring for her. Now we don't know how long it is from this point in time, but we wanted to remind ourselves that there is no coincidence, no luck, no chance, but the providence of a loving and gracious God. So that's what Pastor Doug had told us. Our God providentially reveals his covenantal provision and protection through the kindness of others. Well, last week, Pastor Tim got a chance to talk about how Naomi was being mentoring. He was, she was mentoring Ruth, and she is talking to her about ways that she can go and get this kinsman redeemer, and they set out this bold and daring plan. It was kind of interesting. Uh, send her out there at a harvest meal and send her out there to uncover his feet and lay at his feet. And there's a tension that is there. And she, in fact, I mean, you talk about a modern woman. She actually proposes marriage to Boaz. And Boaz is caught off guard. And it's like, me? Okay. But then Boaz, as integrate as he is, says, there is somebody closer in line than me. I'm going to go and talk to that person, this kinsman redeemer, and I'm going to speak to this person to see if they will redeem you. And if not, I'll do it. And so Tim talked about the fact of purity in the midst of time and God's amazing love for you. Be shocked and overwhelmed by God's redeeming love in the midst of your season of brokenness and neediness. So now I come to my section. A wonderful section here in Ruth chapter 4, right at the end of the book. 
it's this great story, like this movie, right? This drama, you know, we've got death and we've got life and we've got famine and we've got problems and we've got bitterness and we've got self-pity and we've got darkness and we've got hope. Breaking through time after time. It's just a, it's just a wonderful story. So the, the two themes I want you to keep seeing is that our two struggles are widowhood and childlessness. They are widows in this land and they are childless. They are in need of food, which Boaz has been providing, but they also need family. They have land, apparently, which we're going to find, but they also need a lineage. They need to be able to bring this about in the future. So we begin with Ruth chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. I call it the anonymous man. We'll find out why here in a moment. And there's a preparation for court. Now, there's a court system that is going to happen here. In verse 1, it says this. Now, Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down. And he turned aside and sat down. So first thing I need you to know is this. I don't know how long it was um, in chapter one. I don't know how long it was in chapter two or three. I don't know if it actually lays it out, but chapter four begins that very day. So Ruth has left, gone home to tell Naomi, and Boaz has not wasted any time. He has gone to the gate. And at the gate, the gate is a place of significance. It's a place where you would come in and come out from the fields. And it was also the place where the elders of the town would meet. And this is where it would be a social gathering, but it would also be an opportunity for there to be court systems there. And they would have elders in the town at the time. Some in Book of Judges, they talked about having 70 elders in one town. So you may have had a number of elders, but there were at least 10 that were available right now. So he talks about the gate. He talks about that they sat down. All of that talks about a legal system is going to happen right now. And the word here in my version says, and behold, takes on that idea of consequence, you know, coincidence again, but there is no coincidence. God is providentially working. God has placed Boaz here at the time when this anonymous man, this other redeemer comes. And Boaz had spoken to him and he says, turn aside friend. It's just a common language. It was no significance. I call him the anonymous man because the man is not mentioned. He's unnamed. Nobody knows his name. He, he goes throughout history nameless. Only God knows who this man was. In verse 2, it says this, And he took ten men from the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. And they sat down. So he asked the man to sit down, and then he asked ten elders to sit down. So there's a court system that was there. So they sat down. So there's a proposition to serve as the Redeemer that he's going to lay out here. Verse 3. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi has come back from the country of Moab and is selling a parcel of land that belongs to our relative Elimelech. Now, the question would be, well, if she had this pro property in hand, why didn't she just sell it immediately so that she could have taken care of her needs? And, and it's debatable. I'm not going to probably get too far into it, except it is possible that Elimelech sold that property before they went to Moab so that he could provide for his family. And now he's looking to get it back, which in Old Testament law, you could do that. Uh, it is possible that the land was there, and because Naomi and Ruth could not farm that land, they needed somebody else to buy it. Whatever, whatever reason it is, they had a provision of land in their family, and the Redeemer is told this 
anonymous man is told that he has an opportunity to redeem it. Watch in verse 3. Then he said to the redeemer, Naomi has this piece of property, is selling the parcel of land and it belongs to Elimelech, our relative. It's a promising opportunity. Watch what it says here. It looks, it sounds pretty good. If somebody came to you and said, I've got a piece of land and all you have to do is care for an old lady um, until you get the land back, that sounds pretty promising. It's like, ooh, got a good deal here. So watch what he says in verse 4. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of these sitting here, in the presence of the elders of my people, and I will redeem it. If you redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not redeem it, tell me that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it. And I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Now, this goes back to Leviticus chapter 25. Land in this time was so important, significant. Land and lineage. So we want land for our possession. And that land should go from family member to family member. And it should pass down. So Elimelech's land would have gone to his two sons. But the problem is his two sons have died. So now where does it get passed down to? It is possible it got passed down to Naomi and to Ruth in part, but the reality is, is that there is a piece of land that is here and they want it back in their family. Levit Leviticus type, chapter 25. So it's a promising opportunity. The guy says, wow, this may work out pretty good. And watch what he says, I will redeem it. So he thought I would tell you about this piece of property and I'm gonna redeem this property. I like this, I like this deal. So you're gonna give me this, I'm gonna take care of this woman, but then we'll get this piece of property. But there's a plot twist. Watch what happens. You must perpetuate the name of the dead. So it's not only taking care of the property, but there's also something in the Old Testament called Leverite marriage. If, if a person dies and their name is going to stop because the male in that family died and the name of the family is going to stop, a brother or a close relative, who is usually a brother, would come in, marry that woman so that he could bear a child with her, that she would bear a child through him, but it would not be his child, it would be in the name of his brother to perpetuate the name. So that's the plot twist. The guy says, I'm going to take this piece of property. I'll do it. Yeah, good, promising. But Boaz hits him with the plot. Verse 5. Then Boaz said, the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also require, acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Uh, so now it's just, it's completely turned upside down. You told me that I was going to get a piece of property here and that all I would have to do is to care for this older lady and then I would get this property and it would come into my family after she passes on. But now you're telling me I have to take on not only this older lady, I have to take on this woman as well, younger woman, who is of childbearing age, and then I would have to perform Leverite marriage with her, marrying her, trying to get her to have a child so that the name of the other person would continue, and then the land would transfer back to her family. Oh, no. <laughs> he said, uh, no, 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 I'm not, uh, I, 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 thought it sounded good, but that proposition does not sound good to me. Verse 5. This, and I want you to see the personal motivation of this anonymous guy. And I think the reason why he is anonymous is because his, his motivation is really not selfless. It's not for God's glory, seemingly. And it's not for helping out his family member. It's about him, his, his immediate family. Watch what it says in verse 6. 
Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself lest I impair my own inheritance and take my right of redemption upon yourself for I cannot redeem it. It's interesting that the word cannot in my version is mentioned twice there. I cannot redeem it. I cannot redeem it. And I wonder at times, you know, sometimes we say we can't do something, but when it, it's not really an inability, it's an unwillingness. And seemingly here, it seems to me that there is an unwillingness on this man's part to perpetuate the man's name, take on Ruth and take on this thing. Boaz is interesting because when Boaz lays this out, he called her a Moabite, he called her a widow, he talked about perpetuating his name, and she talked about his inheritance. And when he laid it out, it seemed to show that the motivation of this man was perhaps selfish. It was only about his, his family. And I wonder what it is that motivates you and me. You know, as we go through life, the struggles that we have, when we are faced with a decision in front of us, what motivates you? Does it, is it fear that motivates you? Sometimes it is for me. I mean, sometimes I um, can struggle with that fear. Maybe for some of you, it's your reputation. Maybe for some of you, it's financial gain. Maybe for some of you, it's love. Whatever it is that motivates you, what we can see here is there's something different that's motivating, motivating Boaz than this anonymous guy. The anonymous guy does not want his financial benefits hurt. And once again, it's interesting to me that this man goes through time anonymous. Boaz's name is remembered throughout time because of the decision that he made at this point. So the anonymous man waves his right, his privileges, his obligation to serve as the redeemer. He says, I don't want it. You can have it. In verses 7 through 13, we see that Boaz now has received the right to be a redeemer. And, and there's a pledge, and the pledge is going to be made before many witnesses. He's finalizing this court agreement. It's kind of like if you go in and you're going to buy a piece of property, there's a bunch of things that you need to sign, lawyers and all those things. He is finalizing the deal right now in verse 7. Watch what he says. Now this was the custom in the former times of Israel that concerning redeeming and exchanging... To confirm a transaction, one would draw off his sandal and give it to the other, and this was a manner of attesting in Israel. So the writer makes this parenthetical comment. Apparently, when this, when this letter was written, when Boaz, I'm sorry, when Ruth was written, it was after the time that they used to do this. But back in this time, what they would do is to symbolize this, you would sit at the gate, you would have elders meet, then you would take off your shoe and you would give it your sandal and give it to the person. And there, I read commentaries. There's so many uh, ideas of what it could be. Um, some think that he's, you walk off your land in the sandals. So similarly, you're giving back the sandals and saying the land I walked off in my sandals, I'm giving to you. I have no idea, but that's not the big point of it. What I will say is this, there is a two-step process, a nonverbal process and a verbal process. He says verbally, buy it, nonverbally, he gives him his sandal. Whatever it is, it is now very clear in verse 8, so when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he withdrew his shoe. He took his shoe off, gave it to Boaz. Okay, 
Now, this is the passion that I want you to see that Boaz has, a passion to serve and to give. He says in verse 9, it says in verse 9, then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are my witnesses this day that I have brought from the land of the uh, bought from the hand of Naomi and all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malon. Boaz summarizes his motivation for taking on this property. He says, I'm taking on the property and I'm taking on this family. Watch verse 10. And Ruth, the Moabite, widow of Malon. It's funny, we didn't even know who she was married to in verse chapter 1. They didn't tell us in chapter 1, but now we find out. She was married to Malon. And I bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers, from the gate in the native place, you are my witnesses. So he summarizes motivation. I'm going to take on this property. I'm going to take on the privilege of preserving this family name. And I want you to see the powerful prayer of blessing that is given. This amazes me about young uh, Ruth. Ruth was a nobody in chapter 1. But by in chapter 2, she's like a servant. She's a, a poor person. But now, by chapter 3, she is honorable. And people see as, her as a person of integrity. And here, now we hear a powerful blessing in verse 11. It says this. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said... May the Lord make this woman who is coming to your house like Rachel or Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily. And Ephrath, and renowned in Bethlehem, city of the Lord. And so there's a blessing upon Ruth. There's a blessing upon Boaz. And it's like these, these people, these townspeople, and it's not just the ten elders. It seems like other people have come alongside and they're blessing this new couple. Verse 12, and may your house be like the house of Perez and Tamar who bore Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. It's amazing that this, this young woman, this Moabitess and this older man are now getting blessed by this group of people. And who did they pick? They picked Rachel and Leah. The, the two women that fathered, uh, mothered the 12 tribes of Israel. That's who they're saying. They're saying, this Moabite lady, we want her to be as plentiful and have as many children as Rachel and Leah. And then they brought up a story of Perez and Tamar and Judah. And I preached a sermon on this. I'm probably not going to go into that today. But. Go back and look for the sermon on Genesis 38. It's a, a sordid story, but once again, we have this Leverite marriage in that, and Tamar and Perez, and it's the beginning of the tribe through Judah. And so they're pouring this blessing. And now it's talking about not only the privilege of a family, it's talking about the provision of the Lord. Watch what happens. This all happens in one day, verses 1 through 11, and 1 through 12. And now we get to verse 13, which happens apparently over nine months. So Boaz took Ruth. She became his wife whenever that was, probably that same day. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Boaz married her. The Lord gave her conception. Remember 10 years that she was married to Malon and he could not, she could not conceive and unable to conceive. But apparently by some miraculous work, God had given her the ability to, uh, to conceive and Ruth bore a son. 
It's interesting that God has been kind of hiding in the background in each of these. If you go back to Ruth chapter 1 verse 6, it said that the Lord provided food for his people. And now it says that the Lord provided conception for um, Ruth. God has been redeeming his people when they can't see it. He provided for them food and he's providing for them the family. We need to keep that in mind that when we can't see God, he is still active and working in our lives. Well, that goes to verses 14 through 16. We see a child is born to Boaz and Ruth and they, they call him a redeemer, which is interesting to me. Watch here. It's a promise of a blessing on Naomi. And it continues. It says, um, then the woman, then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord for who has left you this day without a redeemer. May his name be renowned in Israel, verse 15, and he shall be a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, a daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more than seven sons, has been given birth to him. Now it's interesting that Boaz is not mentioned here. Naomi, uh, Ruth is not mentioned here. Who is mentioned? Naomi. Why is Naomi coming back into the picture? It's just the cycle from where we were in chapter one. There's a blessing for the Lord that is there. There's a prayer for this child. And there is a recognition that we, he is going to be a restorer of life, a nourisher in your old age, and he's going to be better than an ideal family. So, so what do we see here? We see that Naomi is now taking center stage in this bitter woman from the from the past is now blossoming and fruitful and she's seeing her family line continue through this child that she holds in her hand and this child is going to be a restorer for her a nourisher in her old age and then it talks about your daughter-in-law the daughter-in-law you remember at the end of chapter one nobody had mentioned naomi and now this woman, your daughter-in-law, who loves you, is more important or better than seven sons. If you can think of the ideal family in Old Testament times, seven, this ideal number. So seven sons would be pretty ideal. And they're saying that Ruth is greater than seven sons, greater than the ideal family. There's a picture of fullness and satisfaction, but God's amazing grace that God has taken away from me, Ruth said. God is heavy handed on me, and now God is blessing me over and over. Verse 16, it says this Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. The three words there, three verbs, took the child laid him on his on her lap and then became her nurse not not in a way to um, nurse him by feeding him by her body what she was doing is holding him close to her bosom and her life which would characterize previously by famine and widowhood and barrenness and death now explodes with life and hope and she went from empty and lonely and hopeless and broken to a joyous grandmother you know you got grandmothers in here pull out the pictures let me show you the pictures that is what Naomi Naomi is just like beaming and the town is beaming with her and I want you to compare Ruth 1 to Ruth 4 we had famine in the land and now it's flourishing in the land. It was death in chapter one and it's life. It's cursed in chapter one, now it's blessed. Bitterness in chapter one and now it's joy. Emptiness in chapter one and it is fullness. Despair and now there is hope. That's what God can do in your life. 
Through the darkest days and the darkest trials and the deepest waters, God is still God and he's there and he is working in your waiting when you can't see him. Now, it seems like the story should end there, right? That's a pretty cool story. It should end right there. Boom, credits pop up. We walk out of the movie theater. But wait a minute, something else comes on the screen there. What is it? David, the nation's great king, is a redeemer as well. The providence of God in perilous times. I want you to see this. This was in the time of the what? We wrote this, this book was written in the time of the what? Judges. Really dark time. And there was no king yet in Israel. And this is happening in this time. But then, born into this family is one that is going to be in the lineage of David. David is going to be in their lineage. Watch what happens in verse 17. And the women and the neighbors gave him the name saying, A son has been born to you, Naomi. And the son is this. His name will be Obed. And his father was Jesse, the father of David. Obed means to serve. It comes uh, connected to the uh, author Obadiah. If you remember Obadiah, it means servant of the Lord. There were a lot of Obadiahs in the scriptures. But I want you to see the historical connection to David. David is in this family, Moabite white, a woman, this older man, this widowed mother, grand, um, widowed mother, and there's David that is there. David pops out of the scene here, and they named him Obed, and his father was Jesse, the father of David. Verse 18, now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram, father Aminadab. Aminadab, father Nashon. Nashon, father Salmon. Salmon, father Boaz. Boaz, fathered Obed. Obed, father Jesse. Jesse, fathered David. What an amazing story it is that, you know, you were thinking that it was just going to be about a widow and a widow finding provision and land, but it is a story that God says there is a future focus that is here. Now, when they wrote this, David is alive and David is probably king at the time. And, but I want you to think back, if the writers were thinking, if Ruth could even imagine, if Naomi could even imagine, it wasn't just the son that we hold in our hands, but this is the son that is going to be, have a son that is going to have another son that is going to be the great king David, great king over Israel. What a story of God's amazing grace, God's amazing work that he worked in this woman and through this woman. And despite their sin, because I believe it was sin when they went to Moab, despite her bitterness and despite her self-pity and despite her complaining, God worked in this woman's life to work through her life so that you and I can have an amazing story of truth and hope. It's interesting, we've seen four redeemers in this chapter. I, I think of it as Boaz is the redeemer, but we had the anonymous redeemer. We had Boaz. They talked about the child being a redeemer. And they even now talk about David being the national redeemer. But it doesn't stop there. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. So we've got the anonymous redeemer who says, no, I don't want to do this. Then we've got Boaz, really great guy, amazing guy. 
Then we've got a child. This child is going to do something for you and provide some level of redemption. And then we've got King David, who's the redeemer of this land. But now, great David's greater son is the ultimate redeemer of this story. Matthew chapter 1, genealogies. Most people don't like genealogies. They think they're boring. But this is a pretty amazing genealogy if you look. And does this sound familiar? Verse 5. And Salmon fathered Boaz by who? Rahab. You remember who Rahab was? Oh, yeah. Somebody read, oh, yeah. Huh? <laughs> Rahab was the prostitute, right? The prostitute of Joshua is in the family line of who? Jesus. Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz by Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, Obed by who? Ruth, the Moabitess. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of who? David. I love this story because, you know, you look and say, okay, I've got a prostitute in Jesus's background. We've got a Moabitess who was supposed to be cursed till the 10th generation in Jesus's background. We've got Tamar back there. And once again, I'll, you can go to Genesis chapter 38 to hear that story of how Tamar got into Jesus's background on Jesus's genealogy. And you, it's not just the women. I mean, David did some horrendous things, and Judah did some, and there's a lot of people that did some horrendous things that are in the line of David. It's promising to me. It's promising to me because no matter what your sin is, no matter how dark it seems, God can forgive you. God can provide for you. God can protect you. God can draw you together. So where's the gospel here? I want you to see the sovereignty of God. God reigns and he rules. God reigns over the creatures. God reigns over nature. We saw him reigning over the famine over the land and then bringing back. God reigns over life and death. God reigns over open wombs and closed wombs. God reigns. God reigns over the rulers that are going to take over. Rulers that come up and then rulers that step down. God reigns and he rules. He is sovereign over all. And in spite of what sinful people may do to you, I want you to remind yourself of what Joseph said in Genesis 50. You intended it for evil, but God did what? He intended it for good. That even if Elimelech was sinful in taking his family to Moab, even in the midst of that sin, he was going to bring a daughter-in-law back from Moab because it was part of God's sovereign plan. God is at work. In Acts chapter 2, it says this, Then Jesus was delivered up according to the definitive plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified him and you killed him by your hands of lawless men. There was an external, horizontal action that men put him to death, but it was God's definitive plan that was at work to save you. I want you to think not only the sovereignty of God, I want you to think of the providence God. He overrules catechism. Westminster Catechism says this. God's work of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. That 
in the actions that even the actions that we do, God is providentially working in and through those actions. God is doing this. He is over this physical world. God is over creation. God is over the nations. God is over the birth of man, the death of man. God is over the success and the failures of other people. God is over things that seem accidental and insignificant. God protects and he guides. He protects the righteous. He supplies the needs of his people. He answers prayer and he even punishes the wicked. In Romans 8, 28, a passage that we know very well, it says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. I want you to see that, yes, there is an anonymous redeemer who waived his rights. Yes, there was Boaz, an amazing man. And yes, there's a child, Obed, another great guy. And yes, there's King David, amazing leader. But all of them are sinners. All of them have failed ultimately as redeemer. The only one that could redeem you from your sins is a sinless one. The Lord Jesus Christ. All points to Emmanuel as our ultimate redeemer. Great David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In this chapter, there was a word that was repeated over and over again. Twelve times in this chapter, redeemed or redeemer. Twelve times in 22 verses, redemption. God has a plan and a provision for the redemption of his people. Our greatest problem is this. God demands obedience from us. God demands that we have a goal of his glory and loving others. God has a motive. Our desire should be the love of God and trusting God, but we fail on each one of those levels. We disobey God's law. We seek our own glory and we live our lives in unbelief and hatred more often than not. But what Jesus did for you and for me, if you trust in him, is this. He became your atoning sacrifice. Jesus Christ came here to make you connected again again to God, to bring you back to reconciliation. In Hebrews 9, it says this, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purifying our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Or in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18, it says this, Knowing that you were ransomed from futile ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, a lamb without blemish or spot, that Jesus Christ became your sin bearer. Jesus Christ took upon himself the sin of, of your life, he took it upon himself and then he did away with it. That's part of what he did on the cross. He came here, he bore sin and he took it upon himself and he took it away from you if you trust in Christ. He took God's wrath and anger that he would have poured upon you in eternity in hell, he took it upon himself and took it to the end for you that was due for your sin, he took it upon himself so that you could be free. He atoned for you by reconciling you to God and bringing you back into the family of God, bringing you into a relationship with him again so that those that were far off can be brought near. But the one thing, the major thing, all of those are major. He redeemed you. He redeemed you not with silver and gold, but with the precious blood. He bought you back from sin, from Satan, from death. 
So what do we learn from the story of Ruth? I want you to think about this. There are some of you that are suffering immensely right now, terribly. And when you go through that suffering, it's, you, you probably are asking yourself two questions. Why is this happening to me and how can I handle it? Why is, is looking for meaning and purpose and how, is, how do I handle this? And James tells us to consider it joy when you encounter various trials. How can you do that? You can only do that by keeping a powerful focus on a sovereign God who's, who's in absolute and total control of everything. That everything that's happening in my life is happening because of God's sovereign plan. It only happens when you have a God who is infinitely wise and when you trust in a God who knows everything and has the best plan for you. That only can happen when you trust in a loving God who loves you infinitely, even to the point of sending his son to die for you. That can only happen when you think of a God who is perpetually present with you. You will never walk a moment in your life without him. This awesome God who is infinitely wise, who is absolutely sovereign, who is perfectly loving, and he's perpetually present with you. That's how you go through the darkest times of your life, and he's got a goal for you. Hope, peace, joy in Christ. So as you sit there and you go through this, I want you to think of your God as a rock. I want you to think of your God as a fortress, as a deliverer. I want you to see him as very present in your times of troubles. I want you to know that the God is for you. He is never against you. I want you to remind yourself that his grace is sufficient for you. I want you to know his power is made perfect in your weakness. And as you respond to the trials in your life, keeping that God big in your focus, guess what? The problems of your life start to diminish. All of that works well for those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are sitting here today and you've never trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, I pray today you would not be like the anonymous guy. I don't know whether he was saved or not, but just in practical ways, he walked away and he made the things of this earth more important than elevating God and helping others. There's so many of us in this room that do that today. We make the things of this immediate time rather than thinking about a lineage. I want you to think today about the choices that you make because you will not take those provisions with you. You will not take the land with you. You will not take the possessions of this world with you. What you can take with you is a relationship with God. You take your last breath here and you're in eternity with him. Bliss for all of eternity. God is sovereign. God is providential even in perilous times. God is sovereign in your redemption. God is trustworthy. Let's pray. So Father, today I pray that you would remind us of your, your kind grace and your goodness in our lives. Father, it's amazing as we look at that genealogy that... Um, There are a lot of really messed up people in that genealogy. But to be honest, Lord, there's a lot of messed up people in this congregation right now today. And there's a very messed up guy standing in the pulpit today. I thank you for the fact that in spite of all of those failures, we look to a Christ who never failed. In spite of our faithlessness, we look to a God who is faithful. 
in spite of our thinking we can control everything, we look to a God who is completely and totally in control. And Father, when the darkest days of brokenness and loneliness and despair is there for us, I pray that you would remind us that you're working in our waiting. In Jesus' name we pray. glory I will glory in my redeemer whose priceless blood has ransomed me mine was the sin that drove the bitter nails and hung him on that judgment tree I will glory in my redeemer who crushed the power of sin and death my only savior before the holy judge the lamb who is my righteousness the lamb who is my righteousness i will glory i will glory in my redeemer my life he bought my love he owns i have no longings for another i'm satisfied in him alone and i will glory in my redeemer his faithfulness my standing place Though foes are mighty and rush upon me, my feet are firm held by His grace. My feet are firm held by His grace. I will glory in my Redeemer who carries me eagle's wings he crowns my life with love and kindness his triumph song i'll ever sing and i will glory in my redeemer who waits for me at gates of gold and when he calls me it will be paradise his face for to behold his face forever to behold I will glory in my redeemer whose priceless blood has ransomed me mine was the sin that drove the bitterness him on that judgment tree and i will glory in my redeemer who crushed the power of sin and death my only 
Holy Savior before the Holy Judge, the Lamb who is my righteousness, the Lamb who is my righteousness. Lord, we thank you that you are redeeming us consistently, constantly. Lord, we thank you that we are once for all redeemed, Lord, in the blood of Jesus Christ. But like saints of old, Lord, as we read these stories in the Old Testament, the New Testament, these are not put-together people. They are like us. They're a hot mess. They complain, Lord, they're lost. They doubt. They worry and fret. They reject. They do all the things I've done. They do all the things I'm sure I will do. And yet, God, your grace, as we learn, is sufficient for us. That even in these weird stories that pop up in the Old Testament, there's a reason and there's a plan. There's a teaching and, of course, there's a pointing forward to Jesus, ultimately. Jesus' genealogy is not perfect. My past is not perfect. My future is not perfect. But I am redeemed and I am forgiven. I am seen as perfect because the blood of Christ covers me. I, I know I'm not perfect. I know I won't be perfect. But you look at me and you see your son. That's amazing. That's incredible. God, thank you for that free gift, that free mercy and grace. God, we thank you that we can learn about our Redeemer this morning and learn about those who have been redeemed through your grace in the past. God, as we go into this week, may we be people who are looking to redeem or to help, to support, and ultimately say it's not because I have any ability to do that, but because of my great Redeemer, Jesus Christ. We thank you for this time of worship. We thank you for this time of hearing your word. We ask you to be with us as we go into our weeks. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a nice week.